Amen. Well, thank you for praying, Clifford, and uh, it's nice to be able to add uh, a welcome to the, the welcome Simon already gave this morning. It's good to be together. If you have your Bible, please do open up to Galatians chapter 2. Uh, it'll be really helpful for you to have that in front of you as we walk down through it together. I want to begin by uh, sharing an encounter I had on the phone uh, a little while back uh, while I was negotiating a new phone contract with uh, a guy from O2. I got to the point after pushing him hard that I thought I was getting a good deal. And I added then towards the end of our conversation that I travel from time to time and uh, I want to be able to make international calls if needed. And he explained to me, oh, for that, that's easy. You just need a bolt on. And I said, a what? <laughs> he said, you need a bolt on. And I said, what's a bolt on? And he said, it's something you add to your deal that improves on the deal. You can add lots of bolt-ons, he went to explain. There are actually nine types of bolt-on. You can add an international calls bolt-on, or an extra data bolt-on, or data in Europe bolt-on, loads of things like this. So I added the international calls bolt-on, and my good deal supposedly became a great deal. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, because this concept of a bolt-on illustrates really well the problem in the Galatian churches that prompted Paul's sending of this letter that we're studying, the letter to the Galatians. You'll recall how back in Acts 13, Paul worked hard in the Galatian region in central modern-day Turkey. He preached the gospel that faith in the person and finished work of Christ is sufficient to save you from sin and make you right with God. And many people in the Galatian region believed, and they were gathered into small local churches. But then after Paul had moved on and established leaders in those local churches, another group of so-called Christians from a Jewish background came to those groups of Christians and, and said, actually, Paul wasn't right. His gospel was partly right, but you need to go further. To be really right with God, you need to trust in Jesus, but you need to bolt on to Jesus some other Jewish religious observances. Things like the Jewish male rite of circumcision and obedience to the laws of Moses. We read that in Acts 15.1, this group known as the Judaizers, because they were trying to make people become Jews before they became Christians, they were saying, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Essentially, they were saying, trusting in Jesus alone, that gives you a good deal. But if you want a great deal, you need to add these religious works bolt-ons. And the Galatians were buying this. They were buying this Jesus plus religious works version of the gospel. And so Paul writes to them essentially to say, what are you doing? In Christ, you're set free from having to 
earn your salvation from having to work and do things to try and get God to like you. Don't go back to this slavery to various laws and traditions from a Jewish background. Paul was making it clear. Faith alone in Christ alone is sufficient to save you from sin and make you right with God. No bolt-ons needed. That is what he is doing in this letter to the Galatians. Now, sitting here today, a lot of this might sound a bit irrelevant to us. We might be sort of saying, well, look, none of us are thinking we need to be circumcised to be Christians. None of us are really thinking we need to go back and obey the Old Testament laws, uh, or the law of Moses, uh, and, and work hard to get God to like us. We're not there. Well, that might be true on one level, but I think Paul's reminder is as needed as ever. Why do I say that? Because if we are being honest, there is always a temptation in our hearts to subtly turn secondary things into gospel necessities. That is, there is always a subtle temptation to bolt things on to the gospel to try and make our good deal a great deal. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you some examples. We can add a, what we can call a Christian performance bolt-on. We can believe that God loves us in Christ, but if we really want to get into his good books, if we want him to like us, we've got to follow a certain method of devotional practice. We've got to share the gospel with someone every week, and we've got to be at every church meeting organized. Or we could add a theological secondary convictions bolt on. That would say, you're a good Christian if you trust in Jesus, but if you want to be a great Christian, you've got to be theologically reformed, complementarian. You've got to read from a certain Bible translation. You've got to be open to all the spiritual gifts, and you've got to practice believer's baptism. If you don't line up with our secondaries, you're clearly a secondary Christian. We never say it, but we can subtly imply it. Or we could add a cultural bolt on to the sufficient work of Christ, where we would say, you're saved by grace, but if you really want to belong in the church family, you need to dress like us, become more middle class like us, share our political convictions. You actually need to be married and have kids. You need to have a certain vision for how to raise your family. If you do all that, then you'll really be a good Christian. All of those subtleties are ways that we can bolt things on to the gospel to try and turn a good deal into a great deal. And then when we struggle with the bolt-ons, we get riddled with guilt. Does God really want us to live under a cloud of guilt because our performance is poor? We need to hear Paul's message again loud and clear today. Beware of turning cultural or theological or devotional preferences into gospel necessities. Now, it's not to say that all of those other things are unimportant. We just must be careful never to elevate them to things that are added to the gospel to make us right with God. 
we are made right with God by resting our faith in the finished work of Christ alone. No bolt-ons are needed. Now, the false teachers in Galatia disagreed. They would have pushed back against what Paul was saying and what I have just said out of a passion for their Jewish nationalism. They wanted all the converts in Galatia to become more Jewish, to get circumcised, to obey the law of Moses. They were saying, become more like us, and then you can be a really good Christian. And for their version of the gospel, this false gospel, to gain traction amongst the Galatians, they needed to discredit the Apostle Paul and his message. And they had two primary strategies for discrediting him. Number one, convince the Galatians that Paul made his gospel up himself. And that's what we saw Paul refuting last week. Do you remember chapter 1, verse 11? He said, my gospel is not man-made. It's not something I invented. It was given me by revelation from Jesus Christ. The second thing the false teachers needed to do was convince the Galatians that Paul's version of the gospel actually differed from the gospel that the first apostles were preaching. People like Peter, James, and John. If the false teachers could say, look, Peter, James, and John, they preached a certain gospel that was more Jewish. But Paul's version of the gospel, it doesn't match with theirs. So follow the first apostles, not this second-rate pretender. And that is what the Apostle Paul now turns to refute in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. He is answering the question of his critics who are asking, well, Paul, is your gospel not different to the first apostles? That's the question he's answering here in chapter 2, 1 to 10. And to do so, Paul says essentially, well, look, let me tell you the story of when I went up to see the first apostles in Jerusalem and chat through with them the gospel that I preach. Hear my story and how the first apostles actually received me. They totally confirmed that the gospel I preach is in full agreement with what they preach. And as he recounts this story of a time that he went up to Jerusalem and met those first apostles, we will hear his very clear defense of the gospel that Christ alone is enough to save and no bolt-ons are needed. And we will hear this confirmed by the first apostles, Peter, James, and John. So I want us together to walk through Paul's account of this trip to Jerusalem, and I want us to hear again his gospel, that Christ alone is enough to make us right with God. And I want you to experience being set free again this morning from whatever version of bolt-ons in your life are weighing you down. So, very, very simply, Paul recounts his story of going up to Jerusalem to see the first apostles in three stages. Stage one, verses one and two. He tells the Galatians when, with whom, and why he took a trip up to Jerusalem. When did he go? Verse one. It was 14 years 
after his conversion that he outlined in chapter 1. Who did he go with? Verse 1, again, he tells us he went with Barnabas, and also he takes with him a man called Titus. Now, why is Titus's joining Paul emphasized here? Well, very simply because Titus was a Christian from a non-Jewish background. He was a Gentile. He wasn't circumcised. He wasn't culturally Jewish in any way, shape, or form. He was a living example of a true Christian who was trusting in Christ alone to save him without all the Jewish bolt-ons that the Judaizers were insisting on. So Paul essentially was saying, here's a living example of someone who's a true Christian, and he's not circumcised, and he's not doing all this Jewish stuff you want him to do, he's just trusting in Christ. Why did Paul go? Verse 2, he says that he went up to Jerusalem initially because of a revelation. Now this was a revelation from a prophet named Agabus about a need for a trip to Jerusalem to help the saints in Jerusalem with famine relief. We can read all about this in Acts chapter 11. But amidst other things, Paul says he went up to set before the apostles the gospel that he was preaching among the Gentiles. He explains that he did this to make sure he wasn't running in vain. Now, it's not so much that he doubts that his version of the gospel is valid. He wants to render the accusations of the Judaizers void by demonstrating that the first apostles were totally in accord with his gospel and mission. Now, in verse 2, he says that he went up to set before the apostles the gospel that he proclaimed among the Gentiles. What I want to do for a few moments is just slow down and think about what Paul would have said. You see, elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul gives some very clear accounts of what his gospel is. And what I want to do is just think. Imagine ourselves as a fly on the wall. Paul's sitting around a table with Peter, James, and John. And the three of them are are saying, right, Paul, give it to us. What are you preaching? What would Paul have said? And Paul in the New Testament always speaks of the gospel in terms of an event, and then he speaks of what that event accomplished. What is the event of the gospel? Well, Paul would say to the apostles, probably what he said in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what he wrote there. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand. For I delivered to you as of first importance what also I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, whatever else Paul might have said about the gospel, this was the very epicenter of the gospel for Paul, the historic death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins and his powerful resurrection. You could imagine Paul saying, that's what I'm preaching among the Gentiles. Christ 
died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That is the historical event, the historic event that is at the center of the gospel. But then what Paul would say, but we have to then think, what did this event accomplish? And imagine Paul saying, I've got four accomplishments that I just want to unpack. This is what I'm preaching. What did the event of the death of Christ accomplish? Number one, it accomplished the forgiveness of sins. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self, old, laced with sin self, was crucified with him, with Jesus, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. In the book of Colossians, chapter 2, Paul uses a powerful illustration that takes me back to my banking days. Many of you have heard me use this illustration before. I'll keep using it until I can think of a better one. Paul in Colossians 2 says that our sins are like an itemized record of debts that was canceled when it was nailed to the cross in Christ. And I always think when I read Colossians 2 of Paul explaining this of the days when I worked in Ulster Bank and people would come in with their itemized credit card statement and they'd say, I want to pay it off in full. And in those days I would write paid in full, then get my wee ink stamper and just bang it down. And I always just thought, that's the gospel. Paid in full. And that's the illustration that Paul uses in Colossians 2. He says, God took our handwritten record of debts that stood against us And on the cross, Jesus said, I will take them. And it's like that record of debts was nailed to the cross in Jesus and paid in full when Jesus shouted, finished. Paid in full. Paul would be saying to the apostles, that's what I'm preaching. And I can imagine Peter, James, and John's hearts just singing. But here's another accomplishment of the event We are not just forgiven our sins. Paul would say we are actually credited the righteousness of Christ. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, and that's God the Father, made him, Jesus, to be sin. Him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, think you're using your banking app or you're going on into your bank to do a transaction. You've got money in this account and you want to move it to this account. You say, I want to take that all out of my account and put it all in that account. Jesus on the cross said, all your sin, I'm taking it out of your account and I'm putting it into my account. And all my righteousness, I'm transferring it from my account and I'm putting it into your account. So we are not just negatively forgiven, and then you just stay there and forgiven, you're positively made rich with the righteousness of Christ. So being justified is that great theological word that has been used down through the years. Being justified means just as if I had never sinned and just as if I had always obeyed. And Paul would be saying, that's my gospel. And Peter, James, and John would be saying, Amen. But that's not all that the event accomplished. A third accomplishment is we are reconciled with God. 
Now let's hear how the apostle Peter preached this in 1 Peter 3:18. He said, "For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God." And everywhere the apostle Paul was preaching the same message. We are ambassadors for Christ, calling to people saying, "Be reconciled to God." Paul would be preaching, saying, Jesus' death takes all the barriers out of the way so that when we bow our heads to say, Father, there's nothing standing in the way. The way is opened through the event of the death and resurrection of Christ for us to be reconciled to God. No enmity, no wrath. Christ has drained the cup of wrath dry so we can be reconciled with God and have peace with him. Paul would be preaching this, and Peter would be saying, yes. But here is a fourth accomplishment. It's a summary way to say the others in a sense. Paul would be preaching through the event of Jesus' death and resurrection. In him, you get a brand new start at life. Second Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You trust in Jesus, you're made new. The old self, with all the guilt, all the regrets, all the mess, crucified with Christ, so that that old sinful self brought to nothing, rendered nothing, and you're born again, you're alive with Christ. In him you're righteous, reconciled with God, totally forgiven. All of that is experienced through union with Christ. As Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So Paul says, that's my gospel. I'm preaching the event. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He rose again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It accomplished these things. Forgiveness of sins. We're counted righteous. We have reconciliation with God. We're made new. United to Christ. We're made alive. All of this by resting our faith alone in Christ alone. No bolt-ons needed. So that's the first thing Paul recounts. Went up to Jerusalem, just let it all out before those first apostles. But now, look at how in verses 3 to 5, he begins to recount how a group whom he calls the false brothers, I like to call them the bolt-on brothers, how they responded and tried to say, oh no, that's not enough, Paul. You've got, got to add other things to the deal. You've got to have some bolt-ons. Look at what Paul says. Verse 3. He explains that this group, the bolt-on brothers, tried to pressurize Titus 
this Christian from a Gentile background, they tried to pressurize him to become a bit more Jewish, to be circumcised, and to obey their customs. They were saying, as we've already acknowledged, if you want to be a true Christian, you've got to trust in Jesus, yes, but then you've also got to be circumcised, and you've also got to do these other religious works to get God to really accept you. But look at how Paul views what these Judaizers were doing in demanding gospel bolt-ons. At the end of verse 4, he explains that they were trying to bring us again into slavery. Now, why does he frame it like that? Well, we know why. If you have a gospel that says to be accepted by God, you've got to trust Jesus, he'll get you part of the way, and then you've got to earn the rest, get, you've got to get the rest of your way by yourself. Jesus will get you part of the way, then you're, it's up to you to be devoted enough to get yourself the rest of the way. If you have a gospel that says that, how can you ever know that you've done enough? How could you ever know that you've prayed enough, read your Bible enough, come to enough meetings, been authentic enough, trusted enough? How could you ever know if in the end it's down to you doing these religious works, unless you're this, this, and this, you can't be saved? then you're going to try really hard to do this, this, and this, and you're never going to know if you've been good enough. And once again, you're going to be a slave to fear. Paul says, this is not the gospel. Now, in my introduction, I listed subtle ways that we can bolt things onto the gospel today. And all of these things can bring us into a kind of slavery. Let's just go back to that and think about it for a moment. Performance bolt-ons. If this is sort of, you've got to do a certain kind of devotional practice, and you've got, you got to be praying like three times a day every day, and you've got to evangelize three people a week for the rest of your life. If you start thinking like that and bolt that on to say, you know, God loves me, but if you, I want him to really love me, I've got to do all those things. What's that going to do to you? If you don't perform well, you're going to feel guilty. And you're going to struggle because you're going to feel unworthy of coming to God in prayer. And so you'll not pray. Or you'll withhold becoming a member in a church or being baptized because you think, I'm not worthy enough. And again, you're going to reduce the gospel down to your performance. And you're going to only think, well, only when I get to this level of devotion will I be good enough to be baptized and join the church. Performance bolt-ons make Christians live under a cloud of guilt, and they make us slaves. What about theological secondary bolt-ons? Well, if we start thinking, I'll only be right with God if I believe this, 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 these secondary things, we, we start to fear that if we don't agree with the majority, then there's something wrong with us, something deficient about us. Actually, I've been in circles where certain Christians have been afraid to even speak about theological things because they sort of have in their mind, everyone knows what they're talking about, and I don't. If I say something, I'll, I'll sound really stupid. And they can feel like a slave almost to this academic version of theology that they, they, they just, they're not there. And so they feel like a second-rate Christian. Or cultural bolt-ons. Why are they such a problem? Well, 
they make people believe they have to become something else first before they can come to Christ. For a Roman Catholic, they might think, I have to become more Protestant, culturally speaking, in Northern Ireland terms. I could never become a Christian because I don't want to be a unionist, a Roman Catholic might say. And they stumble over something that they're never meant to stumble over. Or if we dress a certain way, or speak a certain way, or even preach a certain way. Loads of people out there in the streets could say, well, that's all, that's all for a certain class of people. It's certainly not for me. I would never be comfortable there. So we've got to be really, really careful of the subtle ways that we can bolt things onto the gospel. The gospel says, Christ has done everything needed to make you right with God. Now, does that mean you can just go and do whatever you want? No, of course not. Because a true Christian is made new and is given new desires by the Holy Spirit to live a life that honors the Lord. It's good to have a faithful devotional life. It's good to know deeply the doctrines you believe. It's good to see a gospel-shaped culture in the local church and in your home life. But we must remember, those things don't make you any more right with God than you would be if you never did none of them, or if you ever did none of them. That's a bit jarring. That jarred me when I wrote it this week. So I'm to read my Bible, I'm to pray, I'm to know my doctrine, I'm to evangelize, I'm to do all these things, but I would be no more right with God than if I never did any of them. Because I am made fully right with God the moment I trust in Christ. No bolt-ons needed. Now, to illustrate that, we don't have to think for long. The thief on the cross. What did he have to offer? <laughs> Who did he evangelize? What good religious works did he do? Did he ever read his Bible? Did he ever pray? Did he ever do any devotional life? Apart from that, Lord, remember me. And when he trusted in Christ on the cross, and when he stood at the threshold and the question was asked, why should I let you into heaven? What would he say? He would say, Christ alone. Christ alone is enough to save. So Paul reflects on this pressure that these Judaizers were applying to Titus. And look at what he says in verse 5. To these bolt-on brothers, we didn't yield in submission to them even for a moment. Why that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. See Paul's passion to preserve and defend the gospel so that the Galatians would walk in freedom. He knew that if the Galatians lost the gospel of Christ alone, he knew that they would lose all of their freedom in Christ. And so... Paul writes this letter to call them back to the true gospel path. Now, let's reflect on this for a moment because we know 
God wants us to walk as his people in true gospel freedom. He wants us to enjoy the freedom that comes with being made right with with him by faith alone in his son alone. I just want to encourage you this week, beware low-level guilt that comes from performance anxiety, Christian performance anxiety. Jerry Bridges is so helpful here in the gospel for real life. I quote, as Christians, we tend to live under a vague sense of guilt. We're not nearly as vigorous in appropriating God's forgiveness as he is in extending it. Consequently, instead of living in the sunshine of God's forgiveness through Christ, we tend to live under an overcast sky of guilt most of the time. God does not want you to live there. Don't deny the gospel by your performance guilt. Turn to Christ. So Paul explains when he went, with whom he went, why he went up to Jerusalem. Then second, he explains how this pressure came on for Titus to be circumcised, but he didn't bow to that pressure even for a moment so that the gospel would be preserved. And now finally, in verses 6 to 10, he recounts how the apostles in Jerusalem responded to his gospel that he set before them. And this is brilliant. He says three things about the apostles' response to the gospel he set before them. Number one, end of verse six. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing. I love that. As for those who were influential, he's speaking of Peter, James, and John, those first apostles, those first pillars of the church. He said, after hearing it all, they added nothing. Now, his words are so intentional. They added nothing. No bolt-ons. Christ is enough to save us from sin, make us right with God. This is the apostolic gospel. Second thing he said, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. Verse 9, when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. That is, they received us. They embraced us. They said, we are united in our gospel and in our mission. Now, it might seem like a really small thing we do here at Great Vic, but it is a lovely thing we do. We saw Sam this morning being welcomed into church membership, and there was a moment where Simon shook Sam's hand. He gave him the right hand of fellowship. Now, what Simon's saying is, we are embracing you. You are one of us. You are with us. We are united in the gospel. Same gospel, Lots of different outworkings of it as we're called to serve the Lord. But we gave Sam the right hand of fellowship this morning to say, yes, we've heard your testimony. We've heard your story of what God has done in your life and we are embracing you into our family. And that is what the first apostles did with Paul. That could be one of the most significant moments in the New Testament outside of the Gospels. Now, why do I say that? Well, what's the hinge on which our whole New Testament turns? The book of Acts. You have the Gospels, the accounts of what Jesus accomplished, the historical 
biographical accounts of Jesus' accomplishments. Then the book of Acts that records how the first apostles carried that gospel to the nations. It recounts for us the conversion of Saul, who became Paul. And when we read of the first apostles here embracing and authenticating and affirming Paul, he's the one then who wrote pretty much the rest of the New Testament. And so we see that the first apostles endorsed and gave their support to the apostle Paul. And so we can embrace Paul as a genuine apostle. Now there's something beautiful here in the way we read uh, verse 9's wording. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Paul saying, we should go to the Gentiles, as in Paul and Barnabas, etc., should go to the Gentiles, and they, Peter, James, and John, to the circumcised, that is, to the Jewish people. They said, our gospel's the same, but we have different callings. The, those first apostles were going to keep reaching out to the Jewish people. Paul, his mission was to cross cultures and go as a missionary to non-Jewish people. There's a beautiful picture here of the way as Christians, we're united around the same gospel, but we often have different callings. Some Christians are called to minister among their own people, to stay in Northern Ireland, in your family, in your workplace, in your wherever your circle is, in your sports club. Stay there, be salt and light right where you are. Just stay, be the best Christian witness you can be where God has placed you. Some are called to do that. Others are called to go, to cross cultures, to go to Portugal like Shane and the Ariases and to learn language in Shane's case and to preach the gospel and to try and plant churches and others like Yanni has spent a life in Kenya and, I don't know, and, and other African countries and I don't know how many languages she's learned for the sake of the gospel. Others are called to break cultures like the Brews who went to Peru and all the others down through the history of this church who have crossed cultures for the sake of the gospel. But Paul adds this lovely line in, in verse 10. They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was very eager to do. The, those first apostles were essentially saying, look, just keep remembering, Paul, our gospel should give us a heart for those struggling. Always give us a heart for those on the margins. It transforms us morally so we become, become lovers of others. And remember, Paul had initially come up to Jerusalem on a famine relief, relief mission to help the poor Jews in Jerusalem. And so the apostles are saying, look, Paul, just as you go, just remember this gospel is all about Christ alone saves us, but it's a gospel that transforms our lives so that we don't just love God, but we love others. And he said, that's exactly the very thing that I wanted to do. We're totally united. So in conclusion, Paul in this section is saying, so, Galatian brothers and sisters, don't buy the lie of the false teachers that my gospel is at odds with the message of the first Jerusalem apostles. That is a lie just created to undermine my ministry, and all those Judaizers want to do is to win you over to their camp so that they can boast that they have created a whole load of Judaizers like them. Paul is going to continue as we study this letter over the next few weeks to keep saying, Christ alone is enough to save you. In him, there's forgiveness, reconciliation, adoption, a fresh new start. If you add anything to this, you're going to take away 
from the glory of the sufficiency of Christ's saving work, and you're going to make yourself a slave to legalism. So I just want to close by asking a couple of questions. Number one, have you been set free from your sins by Jesus Christ? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, why have you not received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Just trust him. He alone makes you right with God. Repent of all your efforts to try and make it to God by yourself. Just receive and rest in the finished work of Christ. If you're here and you're a Christian, here's the second question I want to ask us this morning. Are you living in the goodness of the finished work of Christ? Or are you languishing in that Marry muddy clay of performance guilt. God wants his children to run free and to enjoy the goodness of his grace. He doesn't want us racked with Christ denying guilt. In John Newton's letters, this great 18th century Christian author of amazing grace, saved from a tumultuous background of sin. John Newton wrote a letter to Mrs. Wilberforce in September 1764. And he spoke of this very issue of Christians struggling with low-level guilt because of their performance. With this, I'll close. Newton writes, It becometh the Lord's people to be thankful and to acknowledge his goodness in what we have received. We should not let the grief arising from what we know and feel of our own hearts rob us of the honor, comfort, and joy which the Word designs for us. Though the believer is nothing in himself, yet having all in Jesus, he may rejoice in his name all the day. So when your heart starts to condemn you and and you feel grief arising, and you know in your own heart the mess and the poor performance and the thoughts that come into your mind and it condemns you, you just say, Lord, I have nothing in myself with which to come to you, but I have all I need in Jesus. And I'm just going to think about him all day long. That is just wonderful. So let's rejoice and live in the goodness of the finished work of Christ today. No condemnation in Christ. Christ alone makes us right with God. No bolt-ons needed. Let's pray. Father, what a delight to preach the gospel of being made right with you through the accomplishments of your Son alone. Father, I trust that it 
delights your being to hear us exalting your Son in the way that you want him to be exalted. I pray, Father, through the Son, that it delights you, Holy Spirit, to floodlight the Son in his all-sufficient accomplishments. And I pray that we would have the sense of your pleasure on us this morning, that you don't look at our performance, you look at your Son's performance, and on the basis of what Christ has done, you accept us, and you set your love on us, and your pleasure, and you, sh you shine the smile of your face upon us. Through Christ alone, our hope is found, and we stand together in him this morning with thanksgiving in our hearts. Thank you for the freedom we have in Christ today. May the joy and freedom we experience drive us to a greater life of devotion, a greater life of evangelism, and a greater life where we give ourselves to the one who gave himself to us. In his name we pray together. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together as the musicians begin, and we will sing of our hope that is found in Christ alone.
now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine on you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his...